Good morning and uh, welcome to uh, the second day of our conference uh, with uh, the Mercatus Center and Cato on After Dodd-Frank, the Future of Financial Markets. Um, I am John Allison. I'm the president of the Cato Institute. However, I spent most of my career in the banking business. I was uh, chairman and CEO of BB&T for 20 years, so I have a very intense interest in financial regulation, which I think has been a disaster for our economy. And I think Dodd-Frank is a pylon to that disaster. Uh, so I have some strong opinions about this issue. In fact, I wrote a book called Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure. Um, and part of the purpose of writing that book was to help dispel a myth that the status have done a great job of creating. And the myth is actually the rationale, the justification for Dodd-Frank. And the myth is that the financial crisis was caused by a combination of deregulation of the banking industry and greed on Wall Street. Um, the irony is the banking industry was not deregulated under George Bush. We had three major new regulations, uh, the Privacy Act, the Patriot Act, and Sarbanes-Oxley. So we were not deregulated, we were misregulated. And the other interesting myth is in my 40-year career uh, related to banking, there has always been uh, absolute maximum greed on Wall Street. Uh, to argue that there was more greed than usual is just there's no evidence of that. There's always been greed on Wall Street. Uh, the real cause of the financial crisis, interestingly enough, was primarily government policy. We live in a mixed economy in the United States. The financial services industry is argumentatively the most regulated industry in the world. Uh, it's not surprising the most regulated industry where we had the biggest problems. I think the two big culprits that caused the financial crisis were the Federal Reserve and monetary policies uh, that created negative real interest rates and some very distorted incentives. Combined with government housing policy, and specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the government-sponsored enterprises that would never exist in a free market, and when they failed, owed $5 trillion and had $2 trillion in subprime, subprime mortgages. Um, it is true that a number of large financial institutions, so-called Wall Street, did some bad things. Uh, in my view, they should have been allowed to, be fa to fail. How however, even though they did some very destructive, uh, uh, made some very destructive decisions, uh, they were not the primary cause of the financial crisis, and their bad policies were highly incented by government policy. I do think it's particularly ironic that Chris Dodd and Barney Frank, for which this legislation is named for, were in many ways the two primary uh, architects of the, of the recent financial crisis because they were the huge sponsors of the government subprime uh, mortgage business through Freddie and, and Fannie. Um, when you have a myth that's the foundation for a government policy, Dodd-Frank, it's not surprising that the government policy ends up not to be very effective. And I stayed on BB&T's board till very recently and got to see Dodd-Frank from the inside and a couple ironies about it. First, it's radically increased regulatory costs for the healthy institutions, the Wells Fargo's and the BB&T's. Uh, they've been punished more than the unhealthy institutions in many ways. Secondly, as the Fed's printed money like crazy on one side, they've tightened the lending standards for small business on the other side. Uh, and in the process, it made it harder for small businesses to get loans, which has actually hurt the economic recovery. Uh, a third big factor, I think, that is the consumer compliance regulations are very scary uh, in terms of the potential impact on allocation of credit in the economy. And in fact, the Federal Reserve can now allocate credit based on political considerations like they did in subprime lending versus real economic policy, and that's not healthy. And one last, this is one of my personal themes, and Cato's getting ready to do it, is doing a paper on this. 
there's been intense pressure on banks to manage based on financial modeling. The irony is all the financial models preceding the financial crisis failed, including the Federal Reserve's models. Now, obviously, financial models can be used as a tool, but models out of context, without judgment, without experience, can be very unhealthy. And everybody, all the industry is being forced to basically use the same models, which means we're all going to make the same mistakes. And the next crisis is going to be probably worse than the last one was for that reason. So I view Dodd-Frank as failed, uh, failed legislation. Um, I have the, the real honor today to introduce our primary speaker. And this is a, uh, an individual that I personally uh, have a great admiration for, Dick Kovacevich. Uh, is the retired chairman and CEO of Wells Fargo. He is clearly uh, one of the most highly regarded, maybe the most highly regarded leader in the banking industry. Uh, Dick, and certainly when people ask me who I looked to when I was CEO of BB&T in the industry, I had a very short list and Dick was at the, the head of that list. Uh, Dick was uh, born in Washington State. He went to Stanford University. He had uh, undergraduate and master's degree in industrial engineering and then he went to the Stanford uh, uh, Business School. He started out in General Mills and then went to Citigroup on the retail side of their bank, uh, became chief operating officer at Norwest from there, and then became chairman and CEO of Norwest, which was a large regional bank at that time. He um, instituted one of the most successful large bank mergers in history, and most large bank mergers, by the way, don't work out, when he uh, acquired Wells Fargo and effectively changed the name of Norwest to, to Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo now has the highest market cap of any financial institution in the U.S. and would certainly be considered by those that really understand the industry as the premier financial institution in America. And that's because of Dick's leadership. Uh, Dick brought a number of interesting insights to the industry that have uh, now other people understand, but not everybody understands. First, he, he really understood the retail side of banking to be like lots of other retail industries. And he started talking about the Wells Fargo's branches being stores. And the idea was to meet the service needs of the customers and to cross-sell the customers. The more products and services that were provided to one client, the more profitable the client, the, more, the less likely the client would be uh, to leave. And he developed a very effective sales organization in, in that regard, focused on clients, uh, sales and service. Uh, he, was, he was a great strategic thinker. And one of the the good things he did is he made acquisitions that made sense. A lot of acquisitions in the banking business didn't work because people paid too much for those acquisitions. Um, he was also very um, influential in helping banks expand their product offerings and, and, and services beyond traditional banking products and model with the sales and service idea. But I think Dick's most important insight that a lot of bankers miss is that banking business and most business is a human business. It's about personal relationships, and then employees in the organization had to be both have the authority and also the accountability around those personal relationships, and that treating the people right is how you make the business work. And I think that's the primary reason that Wells Fargo has been uh, so successful. So Bill, uh, Dick was a, is a leader at Wells Fargo. He's a leader in the industry. Um, he was also a leader trying to fight uh, irrational government regulation, and I personally observed that on a number of occasions. In fact, we're a fairly 
strong number of occasions when Dick and I were the only people in the banking industry fighting government regulations. The banking industry, unfortunately, is dominated by crony capitalists. That's just a fact. And in a number of occasions, we were the only people raising concerns. I, I went, we both were part of a committee trying to do something about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Had a lot of opposition within the industry to that when it was blatantly obvious that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were going uh, were going broke. Um, one particular occasion I, I told, reminded Dick of this this morning that I remember a couple months before the, the recession was actually formally started, we had a meeting at the Financial Services Roundtable where the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and this is a long-term uh, pattern, meets with the CEOs of the largest financial institutions. There were probably 25 of us in the room, and this is like October before the December recession starts. And we kind of we go around the room, and every banker in there, we all cautiously and and modestly told the chairman, Mr. Bernanke, that we were concerned about our business, our activity had slowed down. We saw some really negative signs in the economy. Dick was at the end of the table, and Dick stands up, pounds on the table, and says, "Bernanke, our business is going to, to pot. The uh, the the, the uh, automobile finance business, the mortgage business, going. We're headed for a very serious economic correction. You need to really act accordingly." Now, it was very interesting because this chairman of the Federal Reserve kind of looks at us all and particularly looks at Dick and says, well, I don't, I don't agree with all you guys. We've done our models and everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, it's an interesting experience. Now, one question one would ask is why would these kind of people end up with a lot more authority and power through Dodd-Frank than they had before, and they already had a lot of authority and power. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience. But Dick was one of the outspoken spokesmen about rationality in the industry and what really needed to, to be done. So it's really a, an honor to have Dick here today, and, and uh, thank you for coming, Dick, and welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, for that uh, kind introduction. Uh, if you all are have a busy day, uh, John has summarized my speech today. So if you'd like to leave, uh, <laughs> you can uh, uh, use that one, uh, 45 minutes or so to uh, for other purposes. Um, and let me just uh, say that, uh, that uh, John and I indeed are kindred spirits. Uh, I think John is, is one of the best CEOs uh, the banking industry has ever had. And I also admire, uh, John, all that uh, you and your associates are doing here at Cato to, to provide views and analysis on major issues impacting uh, individual freedom, the free enterprise system, government policies, and restoring and promoting the American way of life that has resulted in America's exceptionalism uh, compared to any other country on Earth. So thank you, John, and keep up that great work. Uh, there aren't many advantages of being retired, uh, but one of them is that I don't have to come to Washington, D.C., as I used to do at least a half a dozen times a year. Um, and speaking of, of Washington, I'm sure most of you have experienced all the attention and publicity of the birth of the panda cub, cub at the Smithsonian Zoo, uh, Zoo a few months ago. Uh, Bail Bail, the new cub, should, should fit uh, in well in D.C. Uh, she cost a fortune has no useful skills, <laughs> and is always on TV. <laughs> on the plus side, she is better looking than any members of Congress, <laughs> and unlikely ever to be involved in a sex scandal as pandas are only in the heat a few days a year. <laughs> like many of you, I'm appalled at the political environment and gridlock that continues to exist in this town. 
I simply cannot understand, and nor do I accept why our elected officials continue to concentrate on party politics in the next election, election above doing what's right for America, especially as we endure the past five years of economic stagnation and high unemployment. Nothing, nothing is more debilitating and unfair than a head of a household willing to work but who cannot find a job. Why hasn't job creation been the number one focus of our government during this economic crisis? Now, don't believe for a moment that those economic theorists who tell us the reason for our slow growth, economic malaise, and continued high unemployment is due to the uniqueness of a financially-led economic uh, recession. Rather, it is due to the failure of the leaders in this town to adopt those monetary, monetary, regulatory, and fiscal policies which have successfully worked in the past, while alternatively focusing on a political agenda that did not put economic growth and jobs at the top of the list. In my opinion, the early 1980s economic recession with this exceptionally high 10% inflation, 20% interest rates, and 12% unemployment was far, far more difficult to correct and resolve. Yet, our economy bounced back in 18 months with GDP growth over 7.5% the next year. In the 1980 recovery, GDP growth averaged 4.8%. And for all recoveries since the, world, since the Second World War, the average was 4.1%. This recovery, a paltry 2.2%. With the appropriate monetary, regulatory, and fiscal policies, our economy should be growing at 3% or even higher, which is what is needed to bring employment and budget deficits and the labor particip participation, rate, participation rate to acceptable levels. Now, one of the many reasons our economy is growing at historical low rates is the extraordinary and unprecedented increase in regulations facing job creators, the most by any administration ever. For example, small businesses have always been the major source of new jobs in our country as compared to large companies. Not this time, however. Why? Excessive regulation, higher taxes, and increased health care and other costs according to small business polls over the past five years the exact opposite of job creation policies that have worked well in the past. At the request of John, my focus today will be on financial regulation, but similar regulatory burdens are impacting all industries. For example, the Kauffman Foundation, a think tank, reveals in a survey that small businesses, again, the primary job creators forever, feel, that, feel more overregulated than even overtaxed. The Competitive Enterprise Institute estimates that the total cost of complying with America's federal regulations in 2013 was $1.86 trillion, about $15,000 per household. I will also address this morning why I think the conventional wisdom has it all wrong as to what and who caused this crisis and why the response to this crisis was irresponsibly implemented and can be sum summarized as senseless panic. I will posit that recent financial regulation would not have prevented the last financial crisis nor prevent the next one. I believe that because of Dodd-Frank legislation and the current monetary policies of the Federal Reserve, the bottom 25% of Americans on the economic ladder will have restricted access to mortgage and personal loans and will incur much higher fees for banking services, all of which is inhibiting economic growth and significantly widening, widening the income inequality gap but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So how did we get into this mess? 
Well, the last time I was here was in October 2008 for the infamous TARP meeting between the Treasury Department, regulators, and large bank CEOs. I believed at that time, said so at the meeting, and I still believe today that forcing all banks to take TARP funds, even if they didn't want or need the funds, was one of the worst economic decisions in the history of the United States. What should have happened is that only those financial institutions who were still solvent but had liquidity challenges and who needed the funds temporarily should have been given that choice. You can't fool markets, as Treasury and regulators believed you could. The markets knew which financial institutions were in trouble, as evidenced by stock prices and credit default swap rates that existed at that time. Forcing TARP funds on all banks did not, did not restore confidence in the industry. In fact, it destroyed confidence, as the market concluded that all banks must now be in trouble because all banks were receiving funding and presumed to have needed and wanted it. You may have forgotten that prior to TARP and even a month after the Lehman bankruptcy, markets had declined but were still behaving reasonably well, except for those financial institutions who were having liquidity issues. With the announcement of TARP, isolated liquidity issues turned into a tsunami impacting all banks and all industries. It precipitated a dramatic drop in the stock market, froze trading in the capital markets, magnified and extended the market collapse, damaged the reputations of many financial institutions who did no wrong, increased moral hazard, institutionalized too big to fail, angered and outraged the general public, and provided the Congress an excuse to burden the banking industry, banking industry with a massive 25,000 pages of new regulations, the largest increase in bank regulations in history. How massive? Even four years after its passage, regulators have still completed only 52% of its 398 rules, according to law firm David Polk and Wardwell. These Dodd-Frank legislations were authored not by considered judgment, but rather as anger and punishment for the TARP bailouts. Without TARP, the Dodd-Frank bill would unlikely, have, would, would unlikely have been passed, or at least not in the form that now exists. It was TARP that started this whole mess. Conventional wisdom, on the other hand, especially here in the Beltway, suggests TARP was a great success in restoring confidence in the financial industry. The facts suggest it was un an unmitigated disaster, and TARP should never be repeated. The spin never stops in this town. No surprise, as the authors of TARP were Washington insiders fo focused on protecting their reputation and deflecting the blame for their failure to do their jobs of properly monitoring and reducing excessive risk being taken by some financial institutions. TARP contributed, contributed to an unnecessary panic in the marketplace and required an unprecedented $29 trillion of market intervention by the Fed and the Treasury, over twice the annual GDP of the United States, to restore the very markets that they themselves helped to collapse. I warned at that meeting that politicians, especially those from the Rust Belt, wouldn't stand for giving banks money, but not to struggling automobile and other companies. I also argued that by giving capital to all banks, even the sound ones who didn't need it, the market would likely decide that even the healthy banks were in trouble and confidence levels in the industry would actually decline, not improve. So what actually did happen? Why was TARP clearly a mistake? Well, within two months of giving all banks money, the Dow Jones industrial average fell by 40% and financial stocks fell by 
How can anyone claim that an 80% drop in the stocks of financial institution, institutions reaching their all-time lows is a show of confidence? In fact, it was an unmitigated disaster. Now, giving some banks money who are having liquidity issues may make sense if those banks were not insolvent but are just facing liquidity pressure. Giving all banks funds should ne never occur, never, ever again. Because of TARP, Congress and the administration demonized and vilified all financial uh, companies, even those who did no wrong and who didn't want, need, or even use the money, destroying their reputations with customers and the general public. Forevermore, we will hear that Wall Street was bailed out, but Main Street wasn't. The 1% versus 99%. Occupy Wall Street. Demonstrations against banks have been going on for years and still haven't stopped. Populist initiatives that increase taxes, fines, and other fees on banks are being justified because the taxpayer bailed out Wall Street, and now it's Wall Street's turn to bail out Main Street. But who bailed out whom? Wells Fargo, for example, within one year of receiving TARP funds, paid the US government back, including $2.5 billion in interest costs and warrants for money we never wanted, and for money we never even used. We never used a nickel of the TARP funds. Is that a bailout? Wells Fargo had record earnings, the best in our 160-year history, the very next quarter after being forced to take TARP funds because we were supposedly close to bankruptcy, and record yearly earnings for each of the last five years. Wells Fargo is now the highest-valued financial institution in the world, even though we are only the 21st largest in assets. Obviously, we didn't need the money. TARP also cemented perhaps forever that too big to fail and moral hazard are acceptable US policies, a profound mistake that should have been anticipated. And what about the small investor who lost hundreds of billions of dollars when they sold their bank stocks as they declined by 80% in price? Who should compensate the small investor for these unnecessary losses? The professional investor, on the other hand, profited on the way down by shorting bank stocks and then bought them near the bottom and rolled them back up. Was that fair? Because of TARP and the anger it fomented with the general public, Congress responded with Dodd-Frank legislation, a grab bag of so-called reforms, most of which had nothing to do with the actual causes of the financial crisis. So instead of TARP, what should we have done? Well, as we all know, banks provide loans and access to capital markets to allow businesses to grow and create jobs. We serve customers and allow them to save, borrow, and make payments. Banks are absolutely essential to economic growth. We enjoy cursing banks from time to time, but in truth, we cannot prosper, create jobs, and grow the economy without them. There have always been bank failures, and unfortunately, there will always be. The trick is to allow sufficient risk-taking to promote economic growth, but not so much. Not so much that leads to widespread bank failures and a financial panic. We also need to insist that no financial institution is too big to fail, period. Why don't we let banks just fail, like all other companies? In my 40 years in this business, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of banks that were rescued by using either FDIC and or taxpayer <coughs> funds to make uninsured creditors and depositors whole. In my opinion, there has not yet been any systemic economic reason to not let banks fail over this time. So why has it occurred so consistently? Simple. 
Rescuing failed banks is a method used by regulators to attempt to cover up their failures to properly identify the risk in the banks they regulate, and it must stop. In my opinion, for example, if Bear Stearns, which was about half the size of Lehman, would have, allowed to, would have been allowed to go bankrupt instead of Lehman Brothers, Lehman would have been sold and the subsequent financial crisis would have been greatly reduced. Both J.P. Morgan and the Federal Reserve made a profit as the rescuers of Bear Stearns. So it would have worked. But assume it didn't work. Then obviously Lehman Brothers would have been rescued and the financial crisis would still have been much shorter and dramatically less stressful than the way it was handled. We must always start first with letting financial institutions fail. Effective regulation is all about consistency and appropriate risk oversight. It is clear from the three banking crises in the United States in the past 40 years, 74, 76, 80, 82, and the most recent 2008 and 9, that the United States has not yet achieved this balancing act. None of these past crises occurred because of lack of regulatory authority, but rather the failure of regulators to use their existing authority effectively to rein in excessive speculation by financial institutions. Politicians and regulators have responded to each crisis by piling on more extensive and burdensome regulation and assuring our citizens that we have now fixed the problems without addressing the actual causes of the crisis and the ineffective regulatory system that allowed it to happen. So let me put these regulatory failures in some perspective. When Wells Fargo rescued Wachovia in the fall of 2008, it took us less than a week to determine that Wachovia would have credit and litigation losses exceeding their existing reserves by over $60 billion. The actual losses have been within about 10% of that estimate. Yet, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, and the FDIC had been examining Wachovia's balance sheet for decades. Why, didn't, why did they not find these losses? These same regulators, who failed to detect the high risk being taken by certain banks leading up to this crisis, continue to, dictate to, to, continue to dictate to banks how to improve their risk process. These same regulators, especially the Federal Reserve, say they have a risk model that they believe is so accurate that they will reject the stress test capital plans of those banks whose submissions shows results different from the Fed model. The Federal Reserve claims to be transparent yet they will not share their model with banks. So how accurate is the Fed model? Here's my experience. In the first stress test submission in early 2009, banks were asked to submit their profit and capital forecast for a short six-month period from May to November of 2009. A fairly easy thing to do, given there's only six months in the future. The Fed's model showed that Wells Fargo's revenues would be over 30%, 30% lower than our forecast, which resulted in lower profits and lower capital than our submission. Our actual results, 2% better than even our forecast. How can the Federal Reserve have confidence in a model that inaccurately forecasts revenues only six months into the future by over 30%? I wouldn't share a model that inaccurate either. Ineffective regulators are worse than no regulators at all because they give citizens a false sense of confidence that someone is watching out for them and protecting them so they don't have to do it themselves. 
As Will Rogers used to say, if stupidity got us into this mess, why can't stupidity get us out? <laughs> well, Congress remembered what Will said and enacted, stupidly, the Dodd-Frank legislation. It's some 2,005 pages long and will produce more than 25,000 pages of new regulations from the same regulators who presided over the last three major financial crises. Dodd-Frank does not address the major causes of the recent crisis and offers few approaches to prevent the next one. It also specifically requires identifying systemically important financial institutions, i.e. SIFIs, thus reinforcing that, that those institutions are too big to fail. Dodd-Frank regulations are also prohibiting banks to offer certain products that the markets want and need, products that did not in any way contribute or, or cause the financial crisis. So who is now offering these products? The so-called shadow banks. But hold it. It was the shadow banks who caused this crisis in the first place and who needed to be bailed out, not insured commercial banks. It was investment banks like Bear Stearns and Lehman and about a dozen others. We are just uh, repeating our past mistakes. Why can't the administration, regulators, Congress, and the press see and understand this? So instead of Dodd-Frank, what should Congress have done? How do we end too big to fail once and for all? First, given the long and consistent history of financial failures, we must recognize and acknowledge that regulators are seemingly not capable of using the authority they do have to prevent all failures. Consequently, we must build a regulatory system that assumes failures will definitely occur, but importantly, limits the damage of such, of such failures, makes them possible, bearable, and tolerable, so it does not cause a systemic financial crisis that collapses the entire economy, leading to recessions and taxpayer bailouts. Second, and to mitigate systemic risk, from here forward, we must make clear that for any financial institution, large or small, and just like industrial company failures, all creditors, other than insured depositors, should take a haircut on their investment so that neither the FDIC fund nor the taxpayer is at risk if, as the institution is sold or liquidated. Despite conventional wisdom re requiring large firms to increase their common equity to breathtaking levels, say above 9% of assets, is not the answer. That lowers return on equity to the point that banks will not be able to raise sufficient capital and instead will shrink their balance sheets to meet uh, uh, their liquidity and asset ratios, impeding economic growth and denying loans to people who need it. Also, because the cost of capital becomes so expensive, the more marginal borrower will not get a loan. These are the very companies and individuals who do not have access to capital markets and need access to bank lending the most. And this is exactly what is happening in Europe and, and in the United States today. Of, a, of, of even greater concern, requiring excessive uh, levels of capital might cause financial institutions to take even greater risk in order to earn a satisfactory return on the enlarged capital base. Moreover, because equity capital is permanent and cannot declare an event of default when it perceives the risk to be excessive, it is only marginally effective in imposing discipline on management. Finally, equity holders have an upside potential from taking risk and therefore are more tolerant of risk than creditors. A much more effective form of market discipline would be to ensure that the total long-term debt that a bank 
and bank holding company hold on their balance sheets when coupled with the bank's equity and reserves is more than just to uh, is more than sufficient to cover any reasonably conceivable losses the institution might incur let me emphasize i said bank and bank holding company debt contrary to what regulators are saying at the moment bank creditors bank creditors must also be at risk as well as bank holding company creditors when an institution fails, the FDIC could choose to put the institution into traditional bankruptcy or use an orderly liquidation authority and create a bridge bank uh, or another similar functioning entity that will operate under FDIC control with new management and directors. The bridge bank will continue to serve the needs of depositors and borrowers, leaving the equity and long-term debt in a receivership with no guarantee of recovery. The bridge bank will be sold or privatized as soon as possible. Because total equity and long-term debt at both the bank and uh, holding company level, at the bank and bank holding company level is usually around 30% of assets, it is difficult to imagine that the FDIC, much less taxpayers, would ever incur losses on their failure. If more cushion were desired, a 5 or 10% holdback on uninsured depositors or other creditors could also be imposed. Because debt holders have no upside and provide larger amounts of capital to banks than equity holders, they are in a far better position to moderate the size and, importantly, the risk of banks than equity participants. This plan will not only protect the FDIC and taxpayer against losses in the event of failure, it will impose discipline by the marketplace that will make failure much less likely. A bank will be required to issue senior and subordinated debt on a regular basis. A risky bank will have to pay higher interest, sending a negative signal to management, the board, investors, and regulators and ultimately may not even be able to issue debt, which will curtail its growth and force it to adopt a new lower risk business strategy. Should this approach be implemented, the role of the Federal Reserve and the FDIC should primarily be to provide the liquidity necessary to, uh, to liquidate or sell the company, but not to bail out uninsured depositors, creditors, and investors. It's naive and contrary to all historical experience to believe that the Dodd-Frank and the new Basel III capital accords will significantly increase the cost of capital and regulation on banks and their customers will solve the problems of regulators failing to do their job or will eliminate too big to fail. To substantiate this point, let me ask you these questions. What regulatory authority did the Federal Reserve and other bank regulators not have to rein in those risks taken by financial institutions that precipitated this crisis? I can't think of any. Can you? If that's true, then why did we need Dodd-Frank? What regulatory authority did the SEC not have to rein in the excessive risk and grossly inadequate liquidity plans of investment banks, or to properly regulate the rating agencies whose AAA ratings on certain subprime mortgages were incomprehensible? Even if only the rating agencies had been doing their job, this subprime mortgage problem would have been contained and no national or global economic crisis would have occurred. Why didn't the SEC overrule the Financial Accounting Standards Board, which insisted during the crisis that banks mark to market their securities portfolios even when the markets ceased, to, uh, ceased functioning and needlessly reducing precious bank capital during the crisis by around $500 billion? When the markets were restored, all the uh, capital, all $500 billion uh, came back to the bank's balance sheet. The SEC also allowed FASB to limit the size of the allowance for loan losses pre-crisis that is required for economic downturns. In short, 
the SEC completely failed in their regular, regulatory oversight time and time again. Why didn't Congress rein in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and their increasingly large portfolios of risky assets after two decades of warning by industry experts like John, regulators, and administration officials that one day Fannie and Freddie would blow up and cost taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars? This housing crisis got as big as it did to bring down our entire economy only because, only because of the existence of quasi-private public entities such as Fannie and Freddie. Now, six years after the crisis, Fannie and Freddie still exist. Yet Congress passed Dodd-Frank in two years. Why the difference? Could it be, as John suggested, politics as usual? Could it be to protect Congress and especially Senator Dodd and Congressman Barney Frank, who were the biggest supporters of Fannie and Freddie for over two decades and who didn't heed these warnings? Once again, we are repeating the mistakes of the past as the current bill recently passed by the Senate Banking Committee to replace Fannie and Freddie <coughs> is only a, an improved version of a combined public-private entity. A huge mistake. Why didn't the Office of Thrift Management, who was the primary regulator of the AIG London derivative entity, Washington Mutual, Countrywide, IndyMac, New Century, I could go on and on, do its job? Finally, why didn't state regulators properly regulate the mortgage brokers who committed outright fraud by knowingly falsifying mortgage applications? 70% of all subprime mortgages were originated by these brokers. The Dodd-Frank bill does absolutely nothing to correct these devastating regulatory deficiencies. And until we do, we will continue to have bank failures. In fact, the Dodd-Frank bill ignores the fact that these regulatory failures were the real cause of what should have been a manageable problem but turned into a full-blown worldwide financial and economic crisis and the longest and worst recession since the Great Depression. Many in the financial markets knew what was going on. Hedge funds were betting against subprime portfolios well before it became publicly known. Responsible players like Wells Fargo were losing over 25% market share. Home prices were increasing to unprecedented levels. I personally told bank regulars at least one dozen times that subprime mortgages were worse than toxic waste dumps. Where were our safety valves? Where were the regulators? Now, if you don't remember anything else I say uh, this morning, please remember this that only about 20 financial institutions perpetrated this crisis. Only 20. About half were investment banks, and the other half were savings and loans. Only one, Citicorp, was a commercial bank, but I would argue was operating more like an investment bank. These 20 institutions failed in every respect, from business practices to ethics. Greed and malfeasance were their modus operandi. There was no excuse for their behavior, and they should be punished thoroughly, completely, perhaps even criminally. Yet, 6,000 commercial banks are being punished with Dodd-Frank penalties in the same way as the 20 guilty parties. Why punish the vast majority of banks which behaved appropriately? appropriately? Let me repeat that. Why are we punishing 6,000 commercial banks for the ineptness and malfeasance of 20 other financial institutions who were not even commercial banks? Even Barney Frank, no friend of the banking industry, has stated many times that, Main Street, that mainstream commercial banks did not cause the financial crisis. He is right. But then why did he author Dodd-Frank legislation? Shockingly, certain members of Congress are actually trying to restore the Klaus-Steagall Act, which would resurrect these very same investment banks who just caused the crisis. 
What are they thinking? We finally got rid of all the large investment banks. There's the only two are left. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are now bank holding companies under the supervision of bank regulars. Why would anyone want to recreate them so we can do it all again? These uninformed Congress members believe that investment banking is more risky than commercial banking. Nothing could be for, uh, further from the truth. Basic investment banking, such as best efforts to underwrite bonds and equities, providing M&A and financial advice, buying and selling securities for customers, and helping customers hedge their interest rate, foreign exchange, and commodity risk, is far less risky than making commercial and consumer loans. Lehman's major problem was actually commercial real estate lending, not plain vanilla investment banking. If Glass-Steagall had not been in effect since the 1930s, if it had not been in effect, Investment banks would not have grown to be large, risky, trillion-dollar, wholesale-funded financial institutions, which were comprised of a very low traditional investment banking business combined with a giant hedge fund that was created from the profits from, from their exclusive authority to provide low-risk investment banking. In short, the existence of Glass-Steagall created the investment banks that caused this crisis, and we should never resurrect, resurrect it or them again. So what causes a financial crisis? What should regulators be looking for to anticipate trouble ahead? There are three warning signs when a financial institution, large or small, is approaching the danger zone. We don't need a Dodd-Frank bill. We do need regulators who have the political will and the financial skill to take strong action when they see these three warning signs develop. The first and most common and important warning sign is concentration of risk. Most financial institutions fail because their risks are too concentrated by geography, industry, and or product line. Actually, a large bank should be able to diversify its risk more broadly than a small bank. Yet, conventional, conventional wisdom suggests that risk increases with size and that therefore large banks are more risky than small banks. Well, as I've been talking about all day this morning, conventional wisdom is wrong. As far more small banks fail than big banks because small banks are more concentrated. Consider this. Assume a single bank operates across the entire United States, does its business in a similar fashion in all states, and is very diversified with, say, a 15% market share of banking and related financial products in each state. If it did this, it would be around $2 trillion in size. Yet, I believe such a bank is actually at less risk of failing than, say, a $2 billion dollar bank that has a high concentration, say 40% market share in only one or a few states or communities with limited products, even though the larger bank may be 100 times larger. The six large Canadian banks essentially operate in this way, have 80% market share, and none have ever failed or even been bailed out. Admittedly, if a large bank does not diversify its risk, it can cause considerably more damage than a small bank. Some other examples to make my point. During the 1980s, Texas banks were small by today's standards, but among the most profitable and highly capitalized in the country, just before they all failed. They failed because there was no interstate banking at that time, and they were geographically concentrated in Texas with a very high percentage of commercial real estate and energy loans. The savings and loan crisis of the 1980s cost taxpayers $150 billion, equivalent to almost a trillion dollars today, None, none of the SNLs were particularly large, but they failed because of concentrations in commercial and residential real estate. There were about a dozen originators of risky subprime mortgages in the most recent financial crisis. Two were over $100 billion. The rest were smaller than $40 billion. 
all failed because their risks were concentrated. The second warning, side is, warning sign is inadequate liquidity. Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers reported, reported relatively high levels of capital, but they failed because of insufficient liquidity, the proverbial run on the bank. Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and other, and other investment banks suffered similarly as the crisis unfolded. It's stunning that these financial institutions were allowed to operate with balance sheets approaching a trillion dollars funded primarily by short-term wholesale liabilities. When rumors, valid or not, surfaced that these firms had problems, they were unable to roll over their short-term funding and failed. Inadequate liquidity has been the primary cause of financial for failures forever. Why can't management and regulators get this right? It's really very obvious and simple to detect. The third warning sign is significant exposure and concentration to capital markets on either the asset, funding side, or even worse, on both sides. Capital markets have seized up in the past and will assuredly seize up in the future, and it usually can't be anticipated. Remember the Russian crisis of the 1990s? It brought down long-term capital and intensified a recession in Asia and other markets. Russia was less than 1% of the world's economy, yet resulted in a worldwide financial crisis and meltdown. Cyprus, remember Cyprus, with only 800,000 people rattled worldwide capital markets a short time ago. Any company that syndicates and sells a large percentage of its loans and other assets, as investment banks do, is far more at risk of failure than a company that originates and holds assets. They have little or no skin in the game as they, see, as they sell all the assets they originate and thus pay much less attention to prudent underwriting standards. Furthermore, capital markets can seize up at any time and severely disrupt the business of a company that relies on the originate and sell business model. Moreover, with little or no recurring income, because originated and securitized assets are sold, not held, they have to keep feeding the beast, originating and selling more and more, regardless of the risk and the markets. When this model also relies primarily on short-term wholesale sources, it is especially toxic, a clear sign of regulators to be vigilant. So let me summarize why I think that enacting the largest increase in banking regulation in history was a huge mistake that it wouldn't have prevented the past crisis nor future ones, and will likely deny credit availability and other banking services to the bottom 25% of consumers on the economic ladder who are most in need. It was created and passed not with sound judgment of what really caused the financial crisis, but as a political response to the understandable outrage of, of Americans by the ill-conceived creation of TARP, one of the worst decisions in US economic history, which intensified and compounded the financial crisis rather than solving it, and created the impression that Wall Street was bailed out and mainstream wasn't. Without TARP, there would not have been a Dodd-Frank bail, as we now know it, nor the demonizing and vilifying of the entire banking industry. Only 20 institutions perpetrated this crisis, and all of them should be punished, perhaps even criminally. Half of these institutions were investment banks, half were savings and loans. None, none were mainstream commercial banks. So why are 6,000 banks being punished? for something they didn't do. Why isn't the focus on reforming on those regulators who had the power to stop these 20 perpetrators and who, completely, and who completely failed to do their job? What about Congress admitting its role in allowing Fannie and Freddie to provide the financial support that caused fire, subprime mortgage to grow from a 5% market share of the mortgage market to about 50% at the peak of the crisis? This share gain and the crisis would never have occurred without Fannie and Freddie and other government agencies purchasing or insuring about 70 percent, 
70% of all subprime mortgages. I personally warn regulators and leaders in Congress in face-to-face -face meetings, in annual reports, and in speeches of the eventual collapse of Fannie and Freddie for over 20 years. Similarly, I warned bank regulators that subprime mortgages were worse than toxic waste two years before the crisis started. So did many others. Neither Congress nor regulators heeded such advice. Was Dodd-Frank and demonizing the entire bank industry a coordinated effort to deflect where the blame should be placed? Today, 6,000 commercial banks and their boards and management are spending most of their time not with customers and not helping the, uh, the economy, but on uh, on, but on compliance, regulatory changes, and litigation for something they didn't even do. Regulators blame bank board members for improper oversight of management. How many times have you heard that? Really? There are upwards of 100 regulators at large banks. Those regulators have an average of over 15 years' experience in the financial service industry and work full-time at these banks. Bank directors? Bank directors? They have roughly 12 members who spend about a day a month on bank business, who are not experts in the financial service industry, for if they were, they would not be considered independent by the SEC. So who is more responsible for insufficient oversight of bank management? 100 full-time regulators or about 12 one-day-a-month bank directors? Who gets criticized the most for bank failures? Does this town get it? We also need to immediately replace the litigation risk associated with the ability to pay language that is in the Dodd-Frank bill. Mainstream commercial banks have been making loans to lower income consumers and those with credit blemishes on their records for decades. They were not among the 20 institutions who perpetrated this crisis. They did not originate loans to subprime borrowers who could never pay them back, as the SNLs did. Nor did they buy and insure them, as Fannie and Freddie did. Nor did they package, sell, and distribute them, as investment banks did nor do they rate them AAA as rating agencies did. Mainstream banks have the experience and expertise to make loans to appropriate borrowers and take the credit risk, but they cannot and will not take litigation risks. Because of this litigation risk, it is more difficult today to qualify for a mortgage than in any other time in my 40 years in this business, and I've been in the mortgage business for 40 years. Mortgages are one of the most valuable assets the general public owns. Housing is critical to economic recoveries and is usually one of the first industries to increase employment after a recession. And the Fed said, we don't really understand how the mortgage business isn't doing very well at the moment. Or the housing market, I guess I should say. It doesn't have to be this way. Because of the litigation risk, most community banks have closed their mortgage departments and aren't even making mortgages anymore. A tragedy for small communities until uh, uh, tragedy for small communities. Until the litigation language of Don Frank has changed, the bottom 25% will not get loans, stifling economic growth, and denying this group, th this group who need banks the most access to financial services. By the way, if the current qualified mortgage exemption of 43% of income would have been in effect before the financial crisis, 25% of all homes that were foreclosed would have passed the test. Extending credit is much more complicated than congressional mandates and simplified guidelines can solve. Get rid of the ability to pay litigation risks and indict any institution or individuals who behave in a criminal or predatory fashion. We also need to replace our current fiscal and monetary policies with those policies that worked well in the past so we can get our economy growing again. 
As a result of all the mistakes I mentioned this morning, our economy is growing at the slowest recovery pace in history. Unemployment continues to be high. Our labor participation rate is, is at an all-time low. Our budget deficits are the highest in history. And Americans have lost confidence in our leaders, in themselves, and our free enterprise system, a system that has created the greatest wealth of any nation in history. We have also lost the respect, the admiration, and confidence of the rest of the world. Need I say more? Thank you for your attention. I would now be happy to receive contrary opinions and answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. There's one right here. Yeah, my name is Bill Klein. I'm a retired Army doctor, so I'm probably one of the poorest in the room to ask this question. But yesterday, in the other half of this conference, uh, John Cochrane, who's from the University of Chicago, I think if I heard it right, made the point that the single key thing that tilted the balance was the fact that people who were engaged in risky investments could borrow money, leverage 30 to 1, with overnight renewal of their uh, loans. I wondered if you had any comments about that practice. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, that overleverage is, is a bad thing. I mean, that's basically what investment banks were doing. They had leverage of about 30 to 1, and they were selling off most of the stuff that they originated. And um, in my opinion, they had to know that the stuff they were selling was junk. Well, uh, they are regulated by the SEC. I mean, I don't know, you know, the management allowed it, okay? <laughs> as I said, they probably should go to jail for as far as I'm concerned. But if, if regulators, why do we have regulators? Everyone knew this was happening. Don't listen to anyone says this, is, this was some secret. No one could have known what was going on. Everyone who was in the industry knew about it. As I said, I mentioned it to regulators over a dozen times. Yes. Uh, Gerald Chandler, I'd like to follow on on his question. As I understood uh, John Cochran yesterday, he said the opposite of what you said. He said that uh, banks should be fi uh, financed by equity, and that way they can't fail and they're, they're, there won't be a run on them. If I understood you, you said the opposite, they should be uh, financed by borrowing. So is, did you say the opposites, and why are you right, and why is John Cochran wrong? Well, I, I, I try to explain it. I didn't say you shouldn't have equity. I'm saying equity uh, at excessive levels doesn't do the job. You, you, you know, uh, if you take equity and debt, you get approximately 30% of, of, of banks' balance sheet. And if you had equity at 30%, uh, a bank wouldn't even exist because the return on equity would be so low, no one would invest in it. So what I'm saying is we should absolutely have reasonable levels of equity. I would put it at around 9% of capital. And then we then use the debt that banks have been using for 100 years. Every bank has roughly that total. And you make those creditors at risk, just like in industry. Why does it work in industry and doesn't work in banks? It is the debt holders. Usually, the, the debt to equity ratio in industry is you know 30% equity, 60, 70% debt. The, the industry wipes out the equity, but then they take haircuts on the debt. 
And all, all I'm suggesting is why wouldn't you use debt that is on balance sheets, the haircut, to, to make sure that, uh, that in a failure, the FDIC and SEC are not at risk? It's, it's common sense. It's, and the reason it's common sense, that's why it works in every other industry except banking. Yes, up top. Hi there. Uh, good morning. Thanks so much for uh, for coming here today. Uh, Charles Ellison with the Philadelphia Tribune. I just have a, a real couple of quick questions. Um, technology. I'm real curious to get your thoughts on one. How could technology or uh, institutional investment in in technology or or technological tools kind of avert some of those warning signs that you you laid out? And then sort of the second question is how do institutions adapt to some of these disruptions in their space, whether it be uh, P2P lending, uh, social investing, digital banking. Um, you know, a lot of experts say that that's making banking sort of obsolete in, in many respects. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I didn't hear anything about technology. Okay. Uh, well, obviously technology is very important in, uh, as a tool to understand uh, what risks are being taken. You model things, uh, uh, you know, uh, you use uh, credit scores are basically using uh, statistics and past behavior to determine, to help you determine what loans to make, et cetera. Uh, but they're only tools. Uh, and and w without those tools, it would be impossible to, to run a bank uh, today, or maybe it was forever, because, uh, you know, there's so many things going on, you need these uh, signals. But this is still a human business. Uh, you have to see these patterns develop and you have to have some experience about when you see these patterns. I told you the three things that I would be looking for if I were a regulator that would give me signals to say, I better go check that. Now, you may check it and think it's fine then, but when you see these three, three things, and, and, uh, uh, but it's, it's an important tool. Uh, in terms of, of you know, uh, disintermediation of the industry, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it may happen someday, but let me just tell you, uh, uh, we bought Wells Fargo at the, during the peak of the internet. And, and we had uh, uh, consultants coming in and so forth saying, the branches are dead, uh, the internet is going to, uh, everyone's going to go to the internet. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the industry is, uh, uh, is going to collapse, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And our answer was, uh, we think the internet is a very important uh, uh, distribution channel. We're going to be the best in it. Uh, but there are four other channels that the consumer also uses, from branches to telephones and mail and a bunch of other things. And we're just going to let the consumer choose, and, or a customer. But, but it's mostly in the consumer uh, space. Uh, and our only belief was that the change would not happen overnight, that, that we would see the pattern of usage change in a, in, in a uh, long period of time so that we could adjust our distribution system accordingly. Now, many other uh, in, uh, financial institutions closed their branches, did all kinds of things. One even changed their name to Wingspan or something and, and had the internet competing with themselves. And I mean, just crazy stuff going on. And, um, and we know what happened is we actually, in, until just recently, had increased uh, uh, stores by about 30% in the industry. So 
technology is valuable. We should use it as a tool, but I think it'd be very, uh, uh, you would, uh, the industry would have to uh, ignore uh, what is going on in the marketplace to allow some technology to so overwhelm it that it itself couldn't uh, offer uh, to lose the relationship with customers. Uh, just as an example today in, in Wells Fargo, uh, uh, mobile is our fastest growing uh, channel. And we tried to do mobile five years ago. First bank went out, nothing happened, zero. Until the smartphone came in and the iPad and whatever, and then it, then it changed and boom, we were ready to go. And we now have 14 million customers that are using mobile every day versus about 21 uh, million on the internet. Uh, I think it'll probably uh, uh, increase uh, or uh, get greater than the internet uh, at some time. So banks have to offer those channels people want. Uh, and when you do, why would somebody want to deal with only one channel when you have the option to use five or six? Even if you never think you're going to use those other uh, distribution channels, if you have the option at no more cost, why wouldn't you want to use it? Yes. Morning, sir. Thank you for your presentation. I'm, I don't know if got my tutorial here. Microphones. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I'm wondering if you could take us back to your meetings with Bernanke when they were forcing the banks uh, to take the TARP loans. Give us some anecdotal evidence of, of what they were doing to exactly do that to you. Um, and then looking forward. I'm, I'm always perplexed why there's no there's no public offensive um, on the part of board members and, and executives, not just in banks but other um, other businesses. For example, when the ACA or the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was up uh, on the table, why there was no outrage? Why why that outrage didn't filter down to the living rooms and the laptops and the personal devices in an effort to communicate to the to the people who are affected most? Uh, what is it in the culture there? that prevents us from hearing what you guys go through? Uh, uh, let me answer the second question first, because it's pretty easy. It's retribution. Um, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but free speech isn't really allowed anymore. And when you can have someone arbitrarily coming to a decision when you can't even see their model or argue with it or, or have a, uh, a buds person that, that is allowed to come in and check it, uh, you could be very reluctant to say something. Now, I've been, do been saying this for years. Okay, some of us just decide we're going to do it and, and uh, you know, we put on our flak jackets and, and take it because it's, it's the truth. And we'll argue, with, we'll argue with you with the truth. But, you know, it's... Uh, Others don't, and as John was saying, we, we were one of the only two or three in the industry before that would be speaking out on things. Um, uh, remind me, your first question is, I'm, I'm over 70. Oh yeah, well it wasn't anecdotal. Uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was very clear, uh, as I, I told you, we were sitting around the table, uh, you know, they, uh, it was in alphabetical order, 
So I'm a W, so I was the last one, and they say you get $25 billion, and I fell off the chair, not literally, but, uh, and said, let me get this straight. You're saying that if you give Wells Fargo, which at that time was the only AAA-rated bank in the country, and one of them, I don't know, half a dozen companies of any size, if you give $25 billion to, well, they started off by saying, the reason we're going to do this is we need to restore confidence in the industry. And our, and our feeling is we give everyone this money, the, all the bolts are going to go up. And I said, you're going to tell me that if you give Wells Fargo, the only AAA bank in the, in the country, $25 billion, that the confidence level in the banking is going to go up? I said, it's going to be, the, it's going to be a disaster. If Wells Fargo needs $25 billion, the market's going to conclude the world has come to an end. And I, and I was ranting and waving, and hands were going as they usually go. And Hank Paulson interrupted and said, your primary regulator is sitting right next to me, which was Bernanke. If you don't take the $25 billion, we're going to declare you capital efficient Monday morning. That was voluntary. I said, oh, I misunderstood you. <laughs> <laughs> Just quick reinforcement, BB&T, we had exactly the same experience. We were threatened. We didn't need the money. We were threatened to take it. I'd like to ask you the same question I asked the panel yesterday about the shadow banking industry, which you did not mention today. Specifically, I I'm specifically, <laughs> though, talking about the country. The, I'm talking now about New Century, Fremont, and others oh. that are not thrifts. They are not investment banks. They are not commercial banks. They are supposedly regulated by the state, but we all know, particularly California, did a horrible job of doing that. Uh, in, in addition to that, Countrywide, a non-bank holding company, was a non-bank Fed that GAO that I work for looked at very carefully. The Fed literally refused to examine them for consumer protection during the bubble years. Literally, we, we looked at them during the bubble years, and they said, Oh, we don't do routine uh, consumer protection examinations of non-bank holding companies because uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley prohibits us, which we didn't agree with, but nevertheless, that was the Fed's position. By the way, Bernanke changed that afterwards. So my point is, if you look at inside mortgage finance and look at the top five subprime lenders, they were all these shadow banks, right. all of them. They were not thrifts. They were not commercial banks, no, no, but they, they were, were non-bank holding companies. No, they and many of them created this crisis they sold most of their loans to Wall Street during that time. They did not sell them to Fannie and Freddie, according to everything I've looked at. Countrywide only began selling a lot of loans to uh, Fannie in the middle of 06. By that time, the horse was out of the barn. The bubble had already burst. So could you please address what, what the, the, the failures there by both the Fed and the state regulators okay. to do something about? Yeah, uh, first of all, I think your facts are wrong. Uh, if, if you use shadow banks, uh, these were SNLs, uh, all regulated by OTS. New Century, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they, yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> go check. They're the ones that closed them down. Uh, yes, they were. And AI, they, o, the OTS was even uh, uh, regulated the AIG subsidiary in London that had all the deals. So all, the, all these were thrifts. And, uh, and, and the OT, OTS, uh, the bankers have been saying, I said for at least 20 years, that we had to get rid of the OTS because the reason the OTS existed is because it was the easiest regulator. 
So all the savings banks went to the OTS because they get away with lax regulation. You're also a mistake. Countrywide was actually regulated, believe it or not, by the Federal Reserve in, I don't know, two, six, seven, and the OCC. And, and they got so upset because of the tightness of the regulation, they went to the, uh, they, they uh, changed their charter to the OTS. Now, why would the Fed and the, and the OCC, they, were, they saw the problems because they were beating them over the head with them. And they let him go to the OTS. That was, the that, oh. that was when Bernanke came in and he started squeezing. That's, well, that's why they did it. Okay. Well, but, 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 but why would you let? Why would you let? If you're a regulator and you see problems. Right. Well, I'm just telling you. That's that, regulatory arbitrage and, that, and, and a lot of, and, and a lot should, of institutions should never do happen. that. And let me tell you, because in this town, you never step on anybody else's toes. It's okay if you see... The FASB not allowing a, a people to have a, a property a, a loan reserve because the SEC is supposed to do that. You're already finding it with mutual funds now. The arguments going on about who's, it's about turf in this town. It isn't about what's right and wrong and good or bad. This is my turf. You don't step on my turf, I don't step on your turf. I want more turf, but, but I'm not going to step on your toes. And, and as I said in my speech, these products that banks are now prohibited from offering are going to the shadow, to true shadow banks who, who are not regulated by anybody but the SEC, uh, you know, uh, are now offering these products that indeed we're not able to offer. And the, 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 between the OTS and the investment banks, those were the 20 institutions that caused the crisis. So we're going right back to the same way we did it before. And, and no one even understands it. I mean, we wanna, let's go to mortgages. How, what have you heard in the last uh, year about uh, 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 we can't, our, our, our clientele can't afford 20% down payment? We're back to 3% down payments. When, when everybody <laughs> complained that that's how we got these subprimes and the problems, right? We were given basically no down payments for people to go into homes. We're going right back the same way again. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I can't understand it either. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. By the way, CFTC now does have jurisdiction, I believe, over the shadow banking industry. Well, just, CFPB just, has it. All, just, everybody now has to follow their, their QM rule. Just on everybody. Cons- yeah, but the QM rule makes no sense. Hmm? That's why the, that, the, the QM rule, as I said, it, at 43%, 25% of all subprime mortgages would have passed that test. But yeah. the, 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 nobody's getting a mortgage today. So right. worst ever, because we've got this QM and the rest is litigation risk. You, let me ask you this. What's income? If you're, if you're a fully commissioned salesperson, what's your income? Mm-hmm. What, debt to income ratio you're talking about? Yeah, well, yeah, the 43% is debt to income, right? You, so you've got to find out what the debt of the, of the customer is. You've got to find out what the income is. Mm-hmm. What is the income of a fully commissioned salesman? Right. What is the income of someone who's, who uh, has a significant part of their income that's a bonus? Mm-hmm. What is the income of a small business person? No, those are tough. I, re- I realize that. Well, they're not tough. It's impossible. <laughs> Other than you examine all the elements. Mm-hmm. So if you have a little uh, 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 question about income, you may say, 
okay, I want a 20% down payment on that loan. Or I want uh, mortgage insurance. And so what a, what a proper bank does, which we've been doing for 100 years, mm. is when you see these different areas, you give them, you know, if you're a little concerned about X, you ask more for Y, you take a balanced approach, and you say, I think that it, uh, for this customer, if, it, if, this thing, uh, uh, if they do all these things, I think it's a safe mortgage to do. Uh, we got one rule, 43% of income. By the way, that same study. That's why, the, and if you want to know why the housing market is not performing the way it has in the past, it's the, in my opinion, it's the litigation risk of the Dodd-Frank bill. But I've got to say that the study you referred to, I'm sure, was the Goldman Sachs study that found the 25%. Is that right? Uh, Pretty sure that I was it. I think it was either AEI or, I think it was AEI that I got that information from, but it might have been Goldman well, Sachs. Yeah, but they got it from Goldman because okay. we've looked at that study. That study also found that over 50% of those loans during the crisis, in fact, did default. They did default. All right. And, and they didn't, and, and Goldman couldn't even get the back end DTI at all. So that wasn't even included in their uh, analysis. But even without the back end DTI, over 50% did default. And these are non QM loans. So I'm not defending Dodd Frank. I'm just saying that there, that there is a lot of evidence that the, the products that these lenders made were highly toxic. No question about and it. And that's what QM is trying to get rid of. No question think, about it. I think we have time for one more question. Let's see if we can get somebody else here. Pick one dick. Up here? Yeah. Uh, thanks for your talk. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on the earlier question uh, concerning Jack, John Cochran's point yesterday. And I think what he was trying to say is depositors are debt for banks. Uh, perspective from a bank's perspective because uh, banks want or depositors want to take their money out as quickly as possible if they hear that there's something wrong with the bank so he's viewing debt from the depositors I mean including the depositors and I think what he envisions is more uh, where we'll have a banking system where everything's like a money market mutual fund so I guess the question is would what do you think about having Wells Fargo as primarily a money market mutual fund. Well, who's going to make, who's going to make loans to people? No, I think the, the equity now becomes the depositors because we're all now in. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I understand your question. You just asked me, what if Wells Fargo should be a mutual fund? I'm saying who's going to make loans? No, Wells Fargo would. Well, so well all we have loans. to use the deposits no, no, I think to make the loans. His view is he's saying you use the equity that we as depositors, in the sense of we're equity holders, you use that and uh, that. Well, that's what we do today. The, the, uh, first of all, let's just go back. Uh, uh, you have FDIC up to $200,000, and there's other ways that you can get almost an infinite amount of protection on FDIC. Insured depositors, under what I just said, are absolutely 100% protected. They get their money back right away. The only people that we are talking about is, is long-term debt holders from bonds. They're not depositors. They are buying the bonds and the debt of the company. The, uh, and what I said, if, if that isn't enough, you go to uninsured depositors may take a haircut. But, but the, you know, I don't know. I would guess uh, at Wells Fargo, we have over a trillion dollar deposits, I would say 90% or more 
are insured depositors. They are not at risk at all. And what I'm saying is if you put the, all the other <laughs> providers of capital, uh, equity holders, debt holders, uninsured depositors that are left over, and if they take haircuts, I don't think you will ever find a, a situation where the FDIC, let alone the taxpayer, is at risk by, by making sure that they uh, take a haircut, if not lose everything, if a bank goes under. And those debt holders who have no upside are going to put a discipline on the bank, because there is no upside, uh, to make sure that they don't take risk and, and or their debt uh, uh, costs go up and they can't compete with other banks who are, are safer. And so it, it, it's the market discipline that you need because regula regulators have consistently failed to see problems when there are problems there. So um, I'm not, I, I, I disagree, I guess, with what he's saying, but I'm not sure I understand what he is saying. Dick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.